Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with Wes Fulford, CEO of Veridi Funds, the investment advisor behind the RIGS ETF, which is a clean energy crypto mining ETF listed on the New York Stock Exchange. This was a really enlightening episode for me as we tackled several questions I've been interested in understanding more about, such as what are alternative ways retail investors can get exposure to crypto without needing to hold the underlying asset? And how can the average user better penetrate the highly technical crypto mining industry? As you'll learn, the RIGS ETF attempts to align purpose and profit by investing in the infrastructure that underpins the entire ecosystem with sustainability in mind. Super awesome to have a mining veteran such as Wes on the show to share some of his insights. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey Wes, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so good to have you on the pod today. How's it going? Great, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. How are you? Doing well in Hong Kong. I know uh, you're in Canada, right? I am, yeah, Toronto. Nice, nice. Well, Wes, you are a veteran of the space. If our listeners are from the mining community, they will definitely know who you are. Uh, you have a very storied background as the previous CEO of a public mining company called Bitfarms. But your story starts from before Bitfarms as an investment banker, right? And that's kind of where you discovered Bitcoin. So I would like to say that, you know, you've been in the space longer than a lot of people who are who are probably tuning in um, since 2016. So We'd love to understand, one, your background, and two, what do you think has changed most about Bitcoin since you first learned about it? And this could be what it represents, the culture of the Bitcoin ecosystem, the community. We'd love to get your insights there. Sure. Yeah. Well, so unlike a lot of crypto enthusiasts or adopters these days, I, I came to this marketplace from uh, asset from a traditional financial services background and started my career in investment banking and asset management. So I spent about a dozen years as a banker up here in, in Toronto. Um, most recently, I led the fintech and financial institutions practice for a Canadian bank. And uh, that's how I sort of first learned of Bitcoin or, or I'd heard of it, obviously, but really started paying attention with all the the meetups and and rumors and rumblings of new potential public listings within the sector and it was uh as, as you may or may not know the hive was probably the the first publicly traded cryptocurrency mining company back in september of 2017 and that really sort of kicked off the the uh the adoption and excitement in the in the public markets and uh over the next 12 months we saw about 650 million of capital raised amongst publicly traded mining companies, some of them with like a hope and a dream and, and uh, five, 500 S9s hosted in, in Nebraska or Iceland somewhere and, and others that, you know, had been doing it privately and uh, were endeavoring to list publicly or list a private operation that had some size and scale in the public market, just to sort of improve access to capital. So I came, came at this from a, traditional financial services background, advising boards and management teams on financing strategies and M&A and et cetera, et cetera, and hung up my banking hat in 18 to lead Bitfarms as a, as a private company initially. Founders had put it on a, 
on a path to public markets in Israel was, it was the wrong marketplace for us, sort of a bricks and mortar cash flow traditional um, risk averse investor. We were the only publicly listed cryptocurrency company on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange, so quickly pivoted it back to Canada and repatriated the listing to uh, where we were, where our operations were based and in a market that was certainly more supportive of, of publicly listed companies. So uh, had fun building that, scaling it, financing it, putting the team together, getting through the front door with the regulators here in Canada, the Ontario Securities Commission, our version of the SEC as the first cryptocurrency company to do that. Um, so yeah, a great, great, great experience. And, uh, you know, since then I've, I've moved on to, uh, to co-found and launch a exchange traded fund on the New York Stock Exchange, which is RIGS, which is a cleaner energy crypto mining and infrastructure semiconductor fund. So really a product geared towards investing in the infrastructure that supports this ecosystem, the miners themselves playing this essential service through the validation and, and verification of trades on a global basis. So um, it's been great. But since 2017 um, or 16, when I first got into it, I, I listen, I'm a CFA chartered financial analyst. I sat through a, a Bitcoin lunch, turned around and within I think about four days, I'd opened up uh, a Kraken account and and managed to make my first purchase. So, you know, I think probably got in a lot earlier than most. My cost was somewhere around seven hundred bucks or a coin or something when I first when I first purchased. And uh, but but very very quickly became an uh, an enthusiast and wanting to learn and and uh, absorb everything I could about the protocol and the ecosystem and diving into the sort of economics that that underpinned the, the mining business and itself as I was endeavoring to bank some of those clients looking for access to public markets. And since then, obviously, what's changed has certainly been um, the institutional adoption. Uh, I was out there pitching this story to anybody that would listen in 2018, 2019, saying it's coming, it's coming. You know, Fidelity and and BlackRock and and you know J.P. Morgan, Diamond launches his J.P.M. coin despite being a very uh, adversary um, sort of voice uh, in Bitcoin sort of during the run of 2017, but uh, just just the evolution of projects and DeFi surrounding um, this this ecosystem, the narrative, the bank adoptions, the institutional capital deployment within the sector. That's really been the biggest sort of change over the last five years. And, and uh, I, I was out there, unfortunately, predicting it happening a couple of years prior to uh, 2021, but uh, it, it's worked out well so far. Had you not taken on work with mining companies looking to go public at that time, right? This was 2016, right? 2017. Do you feel like you would have gravitated towards the mining industry first? Or would you have perhaps started a crypto exchange, started a crypto finance platform or asset management platform dedicated to investing in crypto funds? There's certainly lots of ways to play it. But as a, as a banker looking to help facilitate companies' endeavors to go go to public markets and, and access capital, there was, I mean, you, you saw the Coinbase listing earlier this year. But, you know, outside of that, there, in the public markets anyways, there aren't a lot of diversified or uh, 
sort of blockchain services companies or crypto services companies. It's the, the markets started with the miners through Hive and then HUD8 and then a whole handful of others uh, in, in Canada, DMG and Fortress and Bitfarms. So uh, that was where the activity was. And that's where obviously my, my focus was just given where the business and the fees were uh, to be made as, a, as an investment banker. From looking at the exchanges versus the asset managers, you know, BC funds, and then miners themselves, I think I'm a bit of a, I don't want to say nerd, but I, I kind of like the, just, just the business itself of mining, the high voltage electrical distribution, the you know, negative pressure systems, thermodynamic engineering that goes in these facilities, the procurement of hardware, racking of hardware, you walk into, I don't know if you've had the opportunity, I'm sure you have, but you walk into a 20 or 30 megawatt data center and it's pretty exciting stuff. You're kind of- That is on my list, bucket list. It's really cool. And uh, after you've done it, I can guarantee when you're driving through a local suburb or in some random spot, you'll hear this like noise and this whine that is like completely, it'll, it'll forever change your, that, that sort of tone in your head where, you, where you're driving through a neighborhood and you hear that whine, you're like, that's a, that's a crypto mine. I've done it a few times in driving through <laughs> Toronto, the streets of like suburb Toronto. And, uh, and I've heard it a few times. And, and actually one time I just, I pulled in and, and there's some hobbyist guy running a whole bunch of GPUs and, it's, 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 it's cool stuff. It really is when you see the size and scale and the magnitude wow. of, of these facilities. And I enjoy it. I like it. Are there other ways to get exposure to and make money within the, the ecosystem? Of course. But I, I enjoy mining just because it's, uh, it's very similar to other businesses I've banked over the years. And obviously I'm, I'm biased given I've, I've spent a lot of time in it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I want to focus a lot of our conversation on your new endeavor. You talked a, a little bit about rigs earlier and the firm, I guess, backing rigs is called Verity Funds, right? Am I saying that right? Correct. Right. Yep. I would love to understand what are some of the sort of key operational insights you've taken with you from your days as the CEO of Bitfarms needing to navigate through, I imagine, a lot of market cycles? When it comes to operational or logistical challenges, you're doing that out in the open, uh, needing to you know, basically satisfy the investors of the company. So talk to us about some of the uh, key, key operational insights there. Yeah, I, I set it with a pretty specific mandate when I, when I took over the helm at, at Bitfarms as CEO. And, uh, and that was to leverage all that I'd learned and, and the skills and experience of, of um, doing different types of deals over the years uh, to bring an institutional style player to the public markets or minor to the public markets, which hadn't really been done before. You looked at the board composition, the, the, uh, the chief stock and the, the in the money warrants that were sitting on all these capital structures and these these flippers looking for uh, a trade and to to make you know lots of money at the time um, and leverage a, a market cycle we saw the pump to 20k intraday in 2017 and you know everybody and their their mom were out there you know changing corporate names and doing RTOs and just trying to everybody had a you know premier uh, relationship with Bitmain and and uh, <laughs> and we're, you know, out there endeavoring to build crypto mining operations. And uh, what what we tried to do differently is like, 
but prior to going to the public markets, we already had scale. We had about one and a half percent of network compute at the time we we launched as a public company in Israel. And but when I joined, it was very much a private company. It uh, you know, didn't have a CFO, didn't have any accounting team whatsoever. Invoices sitting in boxes in the back of one of our industrial properties. It was uh, a bit of a nightmare, especially four weeks after I joined, we had it listed. And six weeks after that, we had to do our first financial report to the public markets. So it was just absolute chaos. And and then given the, so we went public via a reverse takeover, an existing shell and old natural resources company in Israel. And the change of business also scared away our, our auditors. So we, we had to quickly pivot and court to find uh, an audit firm that would would accept us as a client. We had the bank accounts closed and had to pivot to another financial institution, just given the change of business. So it was mm. it was kind of the wild wild west. And and even as a public company, just going out and procuring director and officer insurance, trying to find an underwriter willing to try to underwrite the associate some premiums tied to the risk in in providing a blanket coverage for your board and, and directors. So it was a, it was a Fairly significant ordeal, but uh, you know the the intent was really to bring an institutional grade minor full transparency, lead lead the industry in terms of disclosure, put together a fantastic board with um, you know senior fellow accountants, uh, securities lawyers, etc., um, and set out to sort of lead the industry in terms of like operational prowess, like, like trying to be the lowest cost operator, trying to be one of the most scaled miners out there, trying to be um, one of the groups out there that, that was able to access capital when, when other, none other were. And, and we did that. And we also managed on board with the big four audit firms. So, uh, and I think that was a first and probably still one of the very few, if not the only company in the public markets that's audited by one of the big four. So, um, Despite all of that effort, people, you know, sentiment drives adoption, and uh, and you know, right. despite trying to bring an institutional grade product to the market, trying to attract blue chip, large cap capital, it still was too early. And this was 2018, 19. I mean, when I joined, Bitcoin was probably at about 15, 14 or 15,000 still in 2018, and by the end of the year, we were at like 3,200. And we still had a had a profitable business barely but we were at that point we were extending payables and it was uh you know we were we were managing through a, a bit of a liquidity crisis but three or four months later we got the only only financing done in the public markets in 2019 i think amongst the publicly listed companies which allowed us to truly scale the business ahead of at, at a pace part that greatly exceeded our peers and and sort of we're off to the races after that. And it was uh, so a fun, fun experience. And the, the sort of key takeaways, I mean, when you look at this business, it's really about understanding the, you know, the core operational drivers are like what type of equipment you're running and how much you're paying for your power is your single biggest OPEX expense. And, uh, you know, the type of equipment in terms of the efficiency and your ability to deliver sort of strong operational expertise and oversight to, to maintain uptime and, and maximize your return on invested capital. And, and I think most importantly, as management teams, it's about when to pull the trigger in terms of financing and managing that cost of capital below your peers 
and being very, very prudent stewards of how you're deploying that capital into new hardware. There's a lot of groups that were out there early this spring buying hardware at 90, 80, 90 bucks a terahash, and that's gonna that's gonna hurt long term, right? If we had three hours, I can dedicate one hour of the conversation to just talking about the massive growth of credit underwriting, yes. right? And how there's been a whole financial services ecosystem within crypto that has been built to service mining companies, public or private, uh, and 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 that's been really, I think, one of the biggest boons to the growth of crypto mining uh, is access to capital, which ties back to where it all started for you anyways, right? Exactly. In the investment banking world, trying to help out mining companies. So, you know, talking about timing, right? You you said maybe with BitFarms, it was a bit too early, but now we're sitting here, it's coming towards the end of 2021. We've seen interest from institutional capital. And with Verity Funds, you're set out to do just that as a registered investment advisor, uh, focusing on institutional and, and both retail capital. And I just wanted to let you speak to why now? Why for the crypto curious retail investor tuning in to this episode, why should they be looking to the RIGS ETF if they're looking for market exposure to crypto? Why not just buy Bitcoin directly? Yeah, so the fundamentals or value prop or investment rationale for buying a miner is the ability to, it's sort of like buying, I always, I always like it to uh, a senior gold producer where, um, you know, if you're one of the lowest cost senior gold producers operating in Canada or, or Nevada or wherever, and you're, you've got a producing mine, if the price of gold goes up by 10%, there's really no direct operational cost increase tied to that running gold pricing. So you've got same same thing would apply to a miner absent a, a absent a, a swift and immediate difficulty bump driven by a massive shipment of hardware that finds its way online in some jurisdiction. If there's a if there's a big run in in BTC for for a period of time, hopefully indefinitely, as as we've climbed to a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand a coin, <laughs> but um, there's a period of time where you're you're capitalizing, assuming you've got size and scale and your equipment running, you've, you're capitalizing on sort of leverage torque to the underlying commodity. Um, most of these miners are producing BTC at a pretty significant discount to spot. To use an example, as given we've been talking about BitFarms, BitFarms recently reported Q2 earnings. Their, their production cost per Bitcoin mine was about $9,000 and spots four and a half x that so you've got leverage torque to the underlying commodity you've got access to a producer that or a mining company that's that's producing it below spot and what has been a trend in 2021 is most of these miners have been doing their best to inventory everything they're possibly producing so you've also got this growing digital asset inventory on the balance sheets of these publicly traded miners, which will also provide torque to the underlying commodity. And in a down market cycle where Bitcoin went from 50 to 40 to 30, if you're on the low end of the cost curve, sort of bottom quartile of the cost curve, you know, you're going to stay plugged in a lot longer than all of your peers on, in terms of global compute. And there's still a very sort of interesting or or economic business that sort of underpins the 
the low cost miners. They're running new new gen hardware at low cost power. You can produce terahash at three or four cents per day, and even in the doldrums of post having of of August two thousand twenty or July two thousand twenty, you're you're still generating a fifty percent plus gross mining margin. So there's a there's a real business here. Um, that being said, I'd also encourage people to, to own Bitcoin directly themselves and figure out how to cold store it with a ledger or a trezor and and just just it's fundamental in terms of adoption and and learning about the asset class that you're investing in and supporting. Mm-hmm. You talk about offering targeted exposure to the Bitcoin mining sector through this ETF, right? And how this is a much better way to get that exposure versus, I'm taking your phrase here, a shotgun basket approach. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us what that means? Yeah, I, I don't want to make any bold statements here, but I, the generalist retail investor, I'm, I'm quite confident that we can do we can do better if you're if you are taking that sort of couch potato reddit or or stock twit style approach to allocating capital across this sector i mean probably your your first purchase is going to be riot or marathon i'm not going to make any comments on whether or not that that is justified but like look they're they both got the sort of highest profile or largest following on some of these mm. big stock forums and and because of that they've got um, probably the largest and most diversified retail shareholder base and they've also got the most um the highest valuation multiples across the sector i think long term as the market becomes a little bit more efficient some of the banks step in with formal research coverage it's not just the independent boutiques uh and and some of the institutions step in to begin deploying capital across the sector, I think things will sort themselves out and the value sort of proper, the, the justification for rigs is we're, we're trying to exploit those market mispricings and leverage our mining operational expertise and years of you know traditional financial markets, stock market valuation, building investment models and DCFs to, to uh, identify the, the dogs, to, to overweight them, and uh, sorry, dogs, stars, dogs. Um, I, I identify the undervalued companies and and underweight the overvalued businesses, so that on a on a diversified basis, we can outperform the generalist retail investor that is taking that sort of couch potato shotgun approach to a basket uh, allocation within the sector. Yeah, actually, let's go deeper into that. You talk a lot about the mining value chain. Actually, every miner that I speak to loves to talk about the value chain, and rightly so, because there are many different components, right, uh, to running a mining operation, no less being an investor, kind of being on the other side and picking and and choosing, uh, you know, the underlying companies to invest in. So understanding what's happening at each part of this mining value chain is very important. Uh, So we'd love for you to talk about that, the current state of the mining value chain, and how that is impacting the way that Veridi is investing through this RIGS ETF uh, and, and looking at the companies within the investable universe. Yeah, so we've given some of the stigma that you're obviously familiar with around the energy consumption and sort of environmental footprint of the of the mining network, like our our 
portfolio allocation is geared towards supporting businesses with renewable-based operations, renewable energy-based operations. So 80% of our, the miners we own have to fit that bucket. And we've got an internal proprietary scoring system where we rank the types of fuels underpinning various, various operations and sort of um, case rank them or megawatt rate them if there's multiple facilities to, to achieve a score that's got to pass our internal benchmark thresholds. In terms of like the style of miners out there, there's the my owner operators that, that build the infrastructure, operate the infrastructure and own their own hardware. There's uh, a number of models out there and, and some that will be coming to markets, for example, Core Scientific, which has a mix of some self-mining, but also a very, very big hosting business where they're just building the infrastructure and selling the power at a 50% premium to where they're procuring it at or um, as of late, some of the big trends have been, you know, deliver the power at almost cost, but share in the mining operational profits of all your hosting clients, tune of 20 or 25% of their gross mining margins. And that, and that would be the sort of attributable income of a, of a hosting style business like that. And then there's just groups of miners out there that own hardware and are flat out hosting it with somebody else. So that have nothing to do with the infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, want to be buying the latest generation equipment and trying to find ways to deploy it at reasonable cost. Ultimately, I think the owner operator wins long term in terms of being able to withstand those periods of weak mining economics. And we've seen lots of them over the last five or six years, most or as of late, the most prominent and probably weakest mining economics we've ever seen were four or five months after that or three or four months after the halving event of May 2020 where you saw revenue per terahash drop to like seven cents, seven high, high sevens, eight cents for a period of time. And there was a fairly significant drop in, in network compute because if you're running an old S9 at five cent power, your cost to generate a terahash of computing power vastly exceeded the eight cents or seven cents of revenue you're getting from that terahash on a daily basis. So it's all about having full control of, of the dollars going out the door in terms of electrical spend, how you're managing the facilities mm -hmm. and um, making sure you've got, again, low cost industrial scale power. And certainly in today's day and age with all the societal investor and media pressures that these boards and management teams are facing is hopefully you're plugged into a green source or it's going to be a, a bumpy road for you going forward. Yeah, I saw that uh, for those who don't report that information of where the energy source is coming from, you just discount that to they're using coal uh, as a default. Yep. And it's, it's, it's interesting launching a product like this because everybody wants to be a part of it. Running an ETF, I mean, our, our portfolio holdings are available daily and updated daily on our website. So you can actually go through the entire portfolio. That's just part of the, the world of, of running ETF. Um, and this is an active management strategy. So again, we are placing bets on, on, on operators we think will, will outperform others and, and do believe that there's some pretty significant mispricings in the marketplace right now, given how kind of early we are. But as, as we proceed over the next couple of quarters, there's going to be a handful of new publicly listed miners that we're pretty excited about. We can diversify the portfolio accordingly. But, but yeah, the, the, 
the sentiment towards energy consumption and transparency is is real. Uh, it's it's a tough time to be executive or, or director of a mining business, and and there, you know, there are groups that are that are leading the way in in trying to sort of revolutionize or just again dating back to 2018 and what we were trying to do at Bit Farms is lead the markets from a transparency and sort of institutional style investment from you know continuous disclosure and board experience and and, and governance and just in, in in general really uh pushing pushing the uh the ball uphill at the time but I, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of miners that that are just getting a lot of pressure to to follow suit well i think that's a perfect uh, sort of segue into maybe you talking about the Bitcoin Mining Council and why that exists in the first place for the untrained mining ear. Uh, you know, they've probably heard things from Elon Musk over the past year. Somehow he's become a leader uh, in, in the Bitcoin mining industry or, or Jack Dorsey. But the sort of formation of the Bitcoin Mining Council I still feel like is is somewhere under the wraps, and we're, we're not sure where this council is is headed in, in terms of what they want to work on. So maybe you could share some insights there. I I think it's a, a net positive for the business. I, I don't I don't want to see any see anything positive or negative. I, I actually don't even want to comment because I've got lots of uh, people I know okay. and some some friends within that council. Um, but whether it's the Crypto Climate Accord or the Bitcoin Mining Council, I think it's all positive like just just driving transparency and and collaboration and a, you know a forum to share thoughts and experience and, and opinions around sort of various operational endeavors or growth endeavors amongst the the participants of that council and and, and just being a voice amongst the, the publicly traded miners and, and private miners to uh to just just help educate the, the generalist investor and and you know I, I do think that the green energy or or uh, the dirty narrative surrounding this business the greenhouse gas emissions the carbon footprint I think it's mm. a little tired and and overdone uh, I, I you know we've we've been facing it for years and years and uh, and there are there are responsible operators out there and when you compare this this protocol this network um, considering what it presents from a societal standpoint as a you know, sovereign currency banking to the unbankable all the wonderful things that bitcoin is i think it's mm. um you know, the, the the footprint of carbon footprint or greenhouse gas emissions tied to the computing power supporting the network it's it's pales in comparisons to administration costs tied to you know 180 global fiat currencies printing offices cars driving to work like it's 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 quite astounding that nobody's flagged that but um look it's all good things we're i'm i'm happy to see initiatives like the bitcoin mining council and there, there'll be more to come and and i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what mm. they do going forward they had a pretty hot start and you know it's now now time to continue pushing right yeah, exactly. Well, one stat I found just so surprising when I was looking through Verity Funds or your website and stuff was that over 50% of Bitcoin mining in North America is done using renewable energy sources. And, you know, what you're trying to do is, one, educate people that this is a fact. But two, you say you want Verity to widen this margin with products like rigs, right? The ETF. Talk to us 
about this. How did this become the case that over 50% of Bitcoin mining is using renewable resources? Yeah, look, uh, I think a lot of it is the opportunities in North America are um, primarily hydro and stranded gas. And that's where a lot of the emphasis has been focused in terms of operational growth for, for existing miners going forward. And uh, it's no question. I mean, stranded gas, there can be some material economic benefits tied to the your, your ability to generate power at some ridiculous pricing that will, you could, you could run S9s for the next five years at some of the pricing that these stranded energy operators are, are uh, achieving through, through what was flared gas wells to, um, you know, piping that flared gas into a small gen set to power a modular based trailer full of, full of old, new mid generation equipment, whatever have you. So, um, but look, economics are the big drivers, and you know, at Bit Farms we scaled a business that was 100% hydropowered in the province of Quebec. And the wonderful thing about hydropower is it, you know, those those turbines. As long as the river doesn't freeze over in the middle of the winter, so you've got lots of flow, uh, those turbines turn 24 hours a day and generate the same amount of power 24 hours a day. And, and the Bitcoin miners that can actually build centers right next to the actual generation and take advantage of some stranded energy that um, doesn't force the the power generator to incur the massive transmission expenditures tied to connecting lines to the northeastern U.S. or transmission losses tied to moving that power to other markets because there's not enough local demand. The Bitcoin miner is actually a pretty amazing uh, customer also on the basis of the fact that they're also drawing the same amount of power 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So uh, kind of marry the infrastructure with the perfect customer and and then getting into the sort of being a good corporate citizen, pairing back demand during times of peak demand, load through load shedding. And um, that was part of our contracts uh, with the with the Quebec government and uh, you know some of the operators down in Texas and, you know, Winstone and the, the big centers, uh, tying to the infrastructure to prevent blackouts like we saw earlier this year they're they're also entering into right. agreements to load right. shed so i think it's mainly driven by economics but also you know sentiment and media and uh you know just board and and, and director pressure to pursue responsible based mining operations so it's it's it's, it is a, there's a pretty big green component that's probably only going to continue in here in North America. Yeah. And, and on the flip side of that, I do want to talk about China because uh, the different types of energy resources, basically, uh, that are used there has impacted public perception of whether there are negative externalities when it comes to Bitcoin mining. Perhaps there isn't as much of an emphasis or there hasn't been as much of an emphasis on utilizing renewable energy sources uh, in many parts of China. Now, of course, we've seen the so-called hash rate exodus from that region uh, out towards the West, a lot of that to North America, I imagine. Talk a bit about the impact of this hash rate exodus. And, you know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What are your thoughts? Yeah, just sort of tying this back to your last question about the energy mix and being 50% plus renewable based in, in North America. The, I think these are sort of one and the same. Like there's been you know, Cambridge or CoinShares uh, 
have have done reports and studies historically that that they funded independently to try and diagnose where major centers of computer located, what type of equipment they're they're running, what the fuel mix is for for the energy powering these operations, and and uh, you know what price they're paying ultimately to see where they where they'd stack up on on the cost curve in terms of cost per terahash of production and. Uh, um, yeah, there's, there's no secret that there's been a lot of hash rate in mainland China. Uh, mm-hmm. That that is migratory during a lot of it during periods of you know during the dry season and wet season. Some of it going to Mongolia, Inner Mongolia in the uh, the dry season. Yeah, sixty to sixty five to seventy percent of network hash rates historically have been mainland China, and and I think this was largely because there was just a lot more adoption. They're sitting next to where the leading equipment manufacturers are based and their assembly facilities are based there's no import duties there's no shipping costs they can get front of the queue uh preferred customer sort of status with the manufacturers uh versus the north american operations and corporates trying to procure hardware overseas so it's no no secret that you've seen the business grow a lot faster historically in china but um Government crackdown certainly is an exodus of hash rates, which is sort of state and government mandated to to shut down and ban mining in certain provinces has been, I think, a good thing for I, I feel really, very bad for anybody, you know, that was historically operating in some of these some of these mm-hmm. jurisdictions. But I think it's been a good thing in terms of diversifying network hash rate geographically, in addition to for all of the like miners within the public markets, the vast majority of them are not mining in mainland China. So if you've got size and scale or reasonable size bulk shipment equipment orders in the queue in the near term and and infrastructure ready to rack it, you're going Mm -hmm. to realize some, you know, pretty attractive outsized economics, certainly right now and in in the near and medium term. While uh, while some of this hardware finds its way out of the country, out of China and, and, and home in some other place. So the scramble now is infrastructure. Again, it's always been power finding low cost, um, hopefully renewable based power, but it's really, you know, the infrastructure side of the thing that, that people are scrambling to keep up with. It's, it's uh, procuring transformers. We can have four or five, six month lead time sometime um, and, and dealing with, some of the pandemic-driven labor shortages tied to building out a 150 megawatt facility, like it's 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 the, the struggle is real. The challenges are there. I'm I'm, uh, I'm glad I'm not trying to scale a mining operation right now in this environment, but uh, <laughs> I think it's a net yeah. positive for for most of the players in the public markets and and, and the network long term. But uh, it's certainly an interesting development that kind of came out of left field. Yeah, I want to plug our friends uh, at Luxor here. They come out with a, a great newsletter called Mining and Hashray. And uh, I, I just want to read a little excerpt that focused on this, this very thing that we're talking about right now, um, titled North American Bitcoin Miners See Record Q2 in Wake of the China Ban. They list companies like Argo Blockchain, Bitfarms, which we've been talking about, HUD8, Marathon, and, and Riot. 
Uh, and they say that the effect of the China ban on profitability has been interesting, such that the production of Bitcoin mining in July alone was roughly half of the total output for Q2, right, over a three-month period. Um, and so they say with more machines coming online every day and massive shipments still to come online down the road, they anticipate an even more explosive Q3 and Q4 for, for these players. So that is just a compliment all the things that you've just mentioned, which is it seems to be a net positive, especially for those who can handle capacity and are ready to take on, you know, a lot of the demand that is being transferred from China over to yep. North America. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed sort of mathlete. So I always go back to the numbers and like the wonderful thing about you know, the revenue, the BTC rewards that you're generating as a, as a mining operator. It's, it's a function of four variables it's it's and and only one of those variables is changing minute by minute which is bitcoin price the other components are the block reward which only changes every two hundred and ten thousand blocks or roughly four years transaction fees where there's not a ton of variability obviously some ebbs and flows tied to sentiment and trading volumes but you know a couple 0.2.3 bitcoin per block in transaction fees is fairly sort of normal course and then difficulty and difficulty adjusts every 2016 blocks in epoch and it's always backward looking it's it's governing block creation time if the blocks were being found too quickly over the past two weeks it ratcheted difficulty up so what we saw or early july of 2021 was the single biggest difficulty drop in the history of the protocol which is about 28 percent in uh so so one day You've got a terahash or a mining operation, let's call it producing 10 BTC a day. And the second that difficulty drop or adjustment occurs, the following block, you're now producing 13 Bitcoin or 12.8 Bitcoin uh, per day. So there's a direct immediate impact. And back to that sort of gold producer analogy, now the economics have just popped yet your operational expenditures to achieve those 13 Bitcoin a day worth of production have not increased. So right to the bottom line, right to your EBITDA. And hence, you saw a bunch of the equities sort of blow out or to the upside as you, you maintain the multiple on that same financial metric and it justifies a higher share price. So a great time to be mining at scale, watching these difficulties drop, drop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and a great time to be an owner of infrastructure of scale because your phone's ringing off the hook with people trying to relocate hardware to North America and willing to pay you a, pr- a premium for it, right? Exactly. So, right. Yeah, so as we wrap up here for our conversation, I've had a great time learning about various mining trends, uh, your insights on how you're making uh, it more accessible to the retail investor to get market exposure, right, through the RIGS ETF. I'd love to understand what are some of the toughest questions you've gotten during the fundraising process for Variety Funds, right? You have a lot of great backers, uh, some who are, you know, like CoinShares, you mentioned earlier, who are deeply involved in mining themselves. They come out with great research. What were some of the toughest questions you got during that process of fundraising? RIGS, which is the RIGZ, which is the New York Stock Exchange listed ETF, um, fundraising acts very differently for a publicly traded uh, product like that. You kind of set it loose in your market and you, you, you have the, the flows in the AUM come to you. We uh, set out earlier in 2021 with, with the inception of Verity Funds. That's the ultimate 
advisor to the ETF, the fund manager per se, um, with with endeavors or ambitions to launch a product like Rigs. And there'll be there'll be more to come. We're going to innovate uh, additional financial products within the the cryptocurrency markets and and this protocol. But but Rigs, sorry, Verity Funds. Yes, we we did invite some external capital investors to participate in the in hopefully the, the long-term success of our business. CoinShares is our single largest um, external investor. Um, we've got Fundamental Labs in there. We, we have an affiliate of, of FTX. So we've got uh, a good group of people behind us. It's, it's a, a very exciting year in, in the cryptocurrency markets in general. And I think there's, you know, People are just clamoring to deploy capital into new ideas, new opportunities, and and you know whenever you're attempting to marry traditional financial markets with this sort of nascent, evolving business or asset class, which is which is now on the radar of of, of every sophisticated investor and enthusiast in the, on the on the planet, but uh, you know I think I think the the potential for widespread adoption and scale is significant so we were, we're, we're again uh, trying to push the envelope trying to um, launch a clean energy based thematic initiative in, in traditional financial markets that will help encourage mining operations to go green as they're in their pursuit of operational expansion but also marry traditional financial markets to this sort of emerging asset class so excited to get it traded uh in july of 2021 and excited for the performance we've been able to achieve to date that the timing was was great um probably um supported by the the exodus of hash rate and from from China, but uh, it's been fun. We're excited for what's ahead. So when can we expect the research side of the business to launch and, you know, help further that mission even more? Yeah, so I mean, we're obviously Luxor is is uh, part of Verity as well. Um, and Ethan Ferris our CFO and uh, co-founder of the business. So I think they do an incredible job from from the mining side of the business with with uh, their their newsletters and websites, uh, just helping educate the generalist investor or, or market participant, and we're we're going to be doing the same uh, with some pretty branded content, and it's something we're we're ramping internally to to try and become a thought leader, and, and but but one step at a time. It's right, right now it's about small team and and want to make sure that. Uh, our primary focus is managing the fund and and making sure we've got the right positions on. But but without question, all of our spare time is spent on you know furthering the initiative, the presence, the content, the uh, distribution. So, do you really have spare time, Wes? <laughs> no, like, not at all. I don't believe it. <laughs> well, as I was mentioning yesterday, we we just moved, which is taking uh, you know uh, a home with with two two young kids a four and a two-year-old and physically picking that up and moving to a new location is just insanity uh, so kids keep me busy launching new businesses is keeping me busy and uh yeah life life isn't uh isn't uncomplicated to say the least <laughs> well i'm sure just a few more years and they're going to be learning how to put mining rigs together what components go to what you know regular kids have legos your kids are going to be learning how to build mining rigs uh, quite, I hope so. quite early yeah. on. 
Well, incredible. Uh, Wes, thank you so much for your time today to hop on Crypto Unstacked. This is, I think, the only mining episode I've done in the past few months, really. I think the last one was with Ethan. So, you know, we have the whole Luxor and Verity collaboration here. I think that's great. And it's always a good time to teach our audience a little bit more about crypto mining. So appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Of course. Thanks, Leslie. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.